My name is Merle Flenner, and I serve uh, on the Elder Council here at First Baptist, and today we'll be reading from the scriptures in Luke 10, 30 through 36. And this is Jesus speaking. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? You may be seated. Thanks, Merle. Let's ask God for his help as we look at his word this morning. God, we thank you for the privilege it is to know you through your word. We thank you, God, that we live in a time where we have ready access to your scripture. Most of us likely have multiple copies of scripture on the device we carry in our pocket. And we're grateful, God, that we have the opportunity to know you through your word. We pray your Holy Spirit would do its work to challenge us to be like Jesus this morning, give us faith to believe in an understanding of what that looks like in our life. We also pray for those folks this morning who are cleaning up wet homes and floors and mud and everything else from the storm last night, and we just pray that you would provide strength and help as needed. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been working our way through the book of Luke, and this morning we find ourselves in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, verses 25 through 37. Merle read the tail end of this section, and one of the key themes that come out of the book of Luke, and not only the book of Luke, it's also the book of Acts. Luke and Acts were written together, and one of the primary themes that comes out of the book of Luke-Acts is outsiders become insiders. The idea for Luke writing to Theophilus, who is likely not a Jew, is that as a Gentile in Christ, he participates fully in the plan of God in the gospel, and he's not a second-class citizen among the people of God. And we see throughout the book of Luke this theme sort of bubble up to the surface that outsiders become insiders. And we see this in particular in this parable that we call the parable of the good Samaritan. The question that it is seeking to answer, and the lawyer asks this question, we'll get to it briefly, is who gets into the kingdom? Who gets into the kingdom? And we're going to look at two approaches, two understanding, two philosophies of who gets into the kingdom. One understands getting into the kingdom as a function of obeying and fidelity to the law. The other one 
looks at it differently as we'll look at in the parable of the Good Samaritan. So the question we're going to answer this morning is, who gets into the kingdom? We're going to look at it from two different perspectives. The first way to understand how do we get into the kingdom of God is by answering this question. What will the law accept? Who gets into the kingdom? What will the law accept? I want to get into the kingdom of God. What will the law accept? Now, now this time of year, a lot of people are planning uh, vacations. A lot of people go on vacation this time of year, summertime, school's out, that sort of thing. So you're planning a vacation. You've got a number of things you have to think about if you're going to go on vacation. You may want to jot these down if you don't know, uh, but you've got to plan for transportation. Uh, you need to buy a plane ticket and then uh, go to the airport and have that flight canceled, but it's fine. You've got to buy a plane ticket or you've got to uh, buy, uh, you know, you got to fuel up your car if you're going to drive somewhere. You might have to plan on where you're going to stay, whether you're going to stay at a hotel or a campground or you're going to haul the RV. Uh, you might have to plan for what you're going to do when you get there. You know, if you're going to travel to a place that there's a resort, you might have to pay fees to uh, watch particular shows or get entrance to uh, particular theme parks. Uh, plus, there's food. So if you're planning a vacation, there's a, a goal, especially if you're the one who's paying for it. To have as much fun as possible for the least amount of money. Now, why is it that you want to go on vacation and spend no more than you need to? Why is that? And the reason is this. You want to keep your money. Right? Am I close? You know, if I don't have to give this guy my money, that's good. So we, we plan. How do I get in? How do I get in for the lowest possible cost. And what we're going to see by looking at the question of this attorney, he's asking that question about the kingdom of God. How do I get in for the lowest possible cost? What's the minimum required to get in to the kingdom of God? Look at verse 25 of Luke 10. Behold, a lawyer stood up. Good. I thought some people might boo. Yeah, now we might have some... Might have some attorneys in the house today, and I don't want to. There's nothing wrong with being an attorney. In fact, there's a good reason to be an attorney. And this lawyer, though, is a little bit different. While there is a legal aspect to his role, this kind of lawyer is an expert in the Old Testament law. He is a theologian. On top of that, he is an expert in understanding how the Old Testament law is supposed to be applied in the life of the believer, in the life of the Jew living in uh, Roman-ruled Israel in the first century. So he's an expert. You would go to him and say, am I allowed to do this on the Sabbath? And he would say, no. That was their pat answer. No, you can't do that on the Sabbath. So a lawyer stood up to put him, that is Jesus, to the test. And he said this, here's the question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He wants to know where Jesus stands on this question. Who gets into the kingdom of God? Who inherits eternal life? And the question is a fair question. Now, notice the wording of it. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And there's some gospel-believing Christians here in the room today who are already frustrated with this guy because you're saying, you don't do anything. You just believe. And that's absolutely right. But have you read the book of James? Right, believers do. And we need to understand that's where this lawyer is coming from. He is not coming from the mindset of 
earning your salvation. He's coming from the mindset of what most religious people of that time would have thought. If you believe something, it changes how you live. That's what he would have thought. So he's not being a merely a legalist. He is asking Jesus, what must you believe? And by implication, if you believe that, what must you therefore do in order to inherit eternal life? What he wants from Jesus is a doctrinal statement that leads into a particular kind of life. And he wants to know where Jesus stands because he is uh, testing him. That's what he says. He was putting Jesus to the test. He might, we might say it this way. What laws must be kept and how are they going to be kept in order to inherit uh, eternal life? Look at Jesus' response in verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law, how do you read it? So Jesus is a rabbi. There are lots of rabbis in the first century. Jesus here is a rabbi and immediately recognized through Jesus' response, he is an expert rabbi. Because he didn't answer the guy's question, did he? He asked him a question, which is what a good rabbi does. Now, many rabbis would have just merely answered the guy's question. Here's what you do. I'll give you the list. But Jesus wants to do more here than provide this guy a punch list. He wants to plumb the depths of his heart. He wants to identify not merely how to answer his question. He wants to know what's going on inside this guy. Of course, Jesus already knows. He just wants everybody else to know. <laughs> he doesn't, but that's what he's going to. He wants to reveal what's going on in his heart. So he's an expert rabbi. His question is pointed. What's written in the law, and how do you read it? What's written in the law? He wants to tell me what the law says, and now... Having told me what the law says, I want you and your thoughts on this particular point. That is, I don't want to know what your rabbi told you. I don't know, want to know what you Googled. I don't want to know what you heard on the radio. I don't want to know what your favorite teacher said. I don't want to know what your church taught you. I don't want to know any of that. I want to know what you think. I want to know, this is what this question is. I want to know, since you know the law, Mr. Lawyer... I want to know how you sleep at night. How do you go to bed at night and feel at peace with God knowing what you know about the law? So don't give me your pat Sunday school answers. Don't tell me what you ought to know. I want to know when nobody else is around and the lights are out and you're left alone with your thoughts and your God, how do you know you have eternal life? That's the question Jesus is asking this attorney. Verse 27 and 28 he responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus then responds in verse 28, you've answered correctly. Do this and live. So the guy responds with a quote from Deuteronomy and the quote from Leviticus, and he, re he responds with the, the law, a common one, and this is is absolutely right. If you want to, there's a, a place where Jesus answers the same way. Mark chapter 12. I can't remember if I put it in, in the dealio or not. So Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. Oh, good, it is up there. I'm going to read it. When the scribes came up and heard them disputing, because uh, the Sadducees were disputing with Jesus, and seeing that Jesus had answered the Sadducees well, he asked, what commandment is the most important one of all? Here's what Jesus said. The most important is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second one is this. Love your neighbors yourself. There's no other command greater than these. The scribe told him, you're right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one, and there's no other besides him. And, and to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than, than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The guy said, listen, I, I know those two things are more important than sacrifices. That's kind of a big statement. Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, and Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're, short, you're getting it, buddy. No one else dared to ask him any more questions after this. So back to the attorney in Luke chapter 10. He answered the way Jesus would have answered this question. This is a common teaching, and it's a clear doctrine. Love God with all your heart, and love your neighbor uh, as yourself. And, and something, though, is missing uh, in his answer. Something is missing in terms of how are you going to get eternal life? How are you going to get into the kingdom of God? Look at verse 29. His heart shows up. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Uh, the attorney, knowing the law, knowing what it means here to love the Lord your God with all your heart, knowing what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, he's trying to justify himself. How do I make it so? This is what the thinking is. When you want to justify yourself, this is what you're doing. How do I make it so the way I am is fine? How do I make it so that everything's fine? If there's a problem, it ain't with me. That's what justify yourself means. So I know I have to love God. Well, that's great because that, no one can measure that. Do you love God? Sure I do. How are you going to test that? Do you love your neighbor? Oh, well, that one we can test. We just got to watch here for a while. So this guy knows I've got a testable condition. I have to love my neighbor. So now I need to make it so I'm okay. So what do I need to do? I need to reduce down to the minimum possible number of people who qualify for neighborly treatment. I hope it's only a couple. I hope, and I hope they're easy to be neighbors to. That's what he's doing. How do I reduce who my neighbor is to the lowest possible number of people that hopefully I don't have to change a thing and I'm justified? What's the minimum amount I have to do to show God I love him and his kingdom? I want to give you a test. You can do this with either a good friend or your spouse. Go home today after church and say, I love you so much. Can you please write down the absolute minimum I have to do to be married to you or be your friend? I, I notice I'm not getting a lot of takers on this. Just write down what's the absolute, I just want to know the lowest possible bar. I mean the lowest possible bar for expressing love towards you. What would your spouse say? Nothing, probably. You know, and, and you would, you might be in danger. Yeah, Ron, yeah, it says that you might need to, to guard yourself. That's exactly what this guy is doing. God, I love you so much. Could you tell me, God, please, what is the absolute minimum I have to do to love you? Isn't that rude? Isn't that normal? Yeah. 
But that is kind of a rude question, isn't it? Who is my neighbor? Is God, how can I get into your kingdom with the minimum and the least and the lowest possible amount of effort and personal change? That's what Jesus reveals in this guy's heart. So Jesus now is going to tell this parable to help this guy see he's understanding this wrongly. He's got good theology, but he's understanding wrongly what it means to be related to God. He wants to point out to this guy that his self-justification completely misses the point because his self-justification actually results in him missing the kingdom of God. He's asking the wrong question because his heart is wrong, because his motive is wrong, because he doesn't care about the kingdom of God. He cares about his kingdom. That's what he cares about. And that's what Jesus is going to reveal through this parable of the Good Samaritan. So the the lawyer is asking this question, who gets into the kingdom? And the question is, what will the law accept? Jesus, through the parable of the Good Samaritan, is going to say, who gets into the kingdom? The question is this, what is God like? You want to get into the kingdom of God, you better make sure you understand what God is like, because his kingdom is all about him. And that's what Jesus is going to show through the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who gets into the kingdom? What is God like? Talking about vacation, so we'll keep the theme going. Say, for example, you book yourself at a vacation at a resort that is an all-inclusive resort. You know what an all-inclusive resort is? It means you get there and they charge you for stuff you thought was included. (laughs) But let's say, for example, this one actually is all-inclusive. It normally means entertainment on property as well as food and beverage and uh, your lodging on property are included. You pay a, a fee to get in, and once you're in, you know you can eat and drink and play around as much as you want. It's not going to cost you anything. It's all-inclusive. Now, say you pay for an all-inclusive resort. You're down in the Mexican Riviera, wherever it might be. You're down enjoying some warm weather, and you are checking in, and they say, well, what's in this big suitcase? And you said, it's a suitcase full of rich crackers and easy cheese. I know you guys have buffets, and you have prime rib, and lobster, and crab, and you've got all that. I think my food, a suitcase of rich crackers and easy cheese, and let's throw in a can of Spam just for some protein. I think I'll bring my food in. Does that make any sense to you? Why would you pay all this money to go to this all-inclusive resort with this uh, five-star chefs that are cooking for you and eat your lousy snack food? And that's what Jesus wants the lawyer to understand. Why are you trying to keep your kingdom? Your kingdom's lame. Why are you trying to keep so much of your kingdom? It's lame. Why would you want to bring your kingdom into the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is off the hook. Why are you trying to bring your stuff in? The kingdom of God is kingdom kind of people who say, I want God in his kingdom. I want it to take over all of my kingdom. I want it to be in every nook and cranny of my kingdom. Because God's kingdom is better than anything I got. That's what Jesus is going to show through this parable. The kingdom kind of people want all of God's kingdom and none of their own because his kingdom is better than our own kingdom. Let's look at the parable. Merle read it. Let's touch on some highlights. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jericho is just to the north and east of Jerusalem. The Bible tells us he was going down to Jericho because Jericho is down from Jerusalem in terms of elevation. 
it, you would walk there, and during the time, it wasn't a time you would want to walk alone, and if you did, you risked having happened to you exactly what happened to this guy. He was robbed and beaten and left for dead. As he was laying there, wallowing in his own blood, he had some people walk by. First of all, he has a priest walk by, going down the road, who sees the guy and crosses over to the other side to avoid the guy. The main thing I want you to understand about a priest is who he is. A priest is of the tribe of Levi, but in particular, among the tribe of Levi, the priests are descended from Aaron. So they're a particular group of Levites who had responsibility in the temple of God for the offerings and sacrifices. So he would have been a religious person with a high position. He would have been somebody you would have assumed has connection with God in his kingdom because he is a priest. Another guy comes by, and he is a Levite. A Levite is someone who would maybe work in the temple of God. He wouldn't offer sacrifices, but he might be a doorkeeper. He might be somebody who works in the temple court, helping people facilitate in the worship at the temple. He would have, somebody, would have been somebody you would assume has connection with the kingdom of God because he is a Levite, obviously working at the temple because he is going home from working in Jerusalem. Both of these people crossed over to the other side of the road in order to avoid contact with this nearly dead guy. Finally, a Samaritan. A Samaritan is someone who lives somewhat north of Jerusalem. There are people drawn from the northern ten tribes of Israel, and after their invasion and destruction by the kingdom of Assyria, their uh, heritage sort of got watered down. They were considered very negatively as half-breed Jews. I've mentioned this before either last week or the week before. It is said it would be better to eat pig in Israel than to eat with a Samaritan. That's how people look down on them. The assumption would be a priest would have connection with the kingdom of God and the Levite would have connection with the kingdom of God and the assumption would be the Samaritan would not. Absolutely not. There is no way a Samaritan could have any connection whatsoever with the kingdom of God. Samaritan saw the guy, and the Bible says he had compassion. He bound up his wounds, poured on oil and wine. Oil was often poured on wounds. Wine was also poured on wounds. And if the wounds were hurting, the wine was poured in the mouth. <laughs> Put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, paid the bill, told the guy to take care of the guy, and I will pay the bill when I get back. Take care of him. Jesus then poses the question to the lawyer in verse 36. Which of these proved to be a neighbor? It's really, really important because he's dealing with an attorney. Jesus is going Matlock on this guy. That's for the older generation. The other guy, Matlock, Google it, guys. Google Matlock. Your grandma loved it. Some of you are like, i got to watch me some Matlock. All right. Go back to verse 26 and 28. Jesus asked the lawyer to tell him who gets eternal life. What did the lawyer say? Love the Lord with God, all your heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the lawyer has already told him who gets eternal life. 
That's what, he's already got him on that. It's on the record. Jesus now, at the end of his parable, asks the lawyer this. Which of these lawyer proved to be a neighbor? You've already said neighbors get eternal life. Who proved to be a neighbor? Who does the lawyer say? Does he say the Samaritan? No, he does not. He wouldn't say that word. Not in polite company. What does he say? Uh, the one who showed him mercy. What did he just do? He just admitted the Samaritan has eternal life. That's what Jesus did to this guy. He got him to say the Samaritan met the definition of having eternal life according to the terms of the attorney at the beginning. And so now all of a sudden the attorney is like, wait, the priest looks like he has eternal life. The Levite looks like he has eternal life. And by my own definition, the attorney has to say, the Samaritan has eternal life. That's what Jesus is trying to get this guy to, con to confront. The, the priest and the Levite can, in fact, be outside the kingdom as priests and Levite. The Samaritan can, in fact, as a Samaritan, be in the kingdom by faith in the word of God. The Samaritan, by the, legal, by the attorney's definition, has life. Jesus says this to the lawyer at the end. You go and do like the Samaritan. You go and do likewise. You go be like this guy. The, the important thing here, who gets into the kingdom? The question is, what is God like? Kingdom people love God the way God loves them. So kingdom people, we love God the way that God loves us. And kingdom people love others the way God loves them. So the question is, who gets into the kingdom of God? People who like God. People who are into his ways. Meaning when we experience the love of God, we go, man, that's great. You would save a guy like me? I love you, God. And God says, I love that guy. And you say, I don't love him so much. But if I'm going to be in the kingdom, I need to figure that out. I need to figure that out. To be in the kingdom of God is to ask this question, what is God like? And to love your neighbor is not to ask, who is my neighbor? The question is, what does it mean to be a neighbor? And that's what this attorney completely missed. The parable changes rules from what will God accept what will God accept in my life and tells us to rethink our life differently instead to look at our life and say, what is God like? And am I being like my father in this part of my life? Because the kingdom is all God all the time. If you don't like being a neighbor, if you don't like loving others, you won't like the kingdom of God because that's what it's about. And what the attorney wants to do is he wants to get into the kingdom of God with as much of his own kingdom as possible, his rich crackers and his easy cheese and, and spam. And God is saying, that's not my kingdom. You can't have my kingdom and yours. I want you to set aside your kingdom and say, what does it mean to love the Lord my God with all my heart in each facet of my life and to love my neighbor as myself? What does it mean to be a neighbor? Because that's what God is like. Who gets into the kingdom? 
Do you want to try and figure out what God will merely, the minimum God will accept, or do you want to know what God is like because that's what his kingdom is like? I want to say one thing about attorneys. <laughs> I don't know, maybe I shouldn't have started that way. I should say it this way. You know, there are some checkbox people in the house, right? We got some checkbox people in the house. There's two kinds of people in the world. There's more than two kinds of people, but let's just reduce it down to this for the sake of simplicity. There are checkbox people, and then the other way, um, I'm going to get myself in so much trouble again. Um, I like to say creatives. You know, I don't need your checkbox. If I give them a checkbox, I draw a picture in it. You know, there's some people, at the end of the day, I want to know the to-do list is done. And yet some people want to know they had a great day. And now the checkbox people are saying, I know I had a great day because the checkboxes are done. And the creative people are saying, if I check all the boxes, it means I probably missed something. I didn't experience something in life. And we're going, what is wrong with you? Just get your stuff done, right? So I don't want to rail against checkbox people. If you're a checkbox person, would you like to get up in the morning and read your Bible? Check and do some prayer? Check. Be nice to your spouse. Check. I got no problem with checkbox people. The point is this. Are you wondering what is the minimum that God will require? That's the heart issue. If you're going to your checkboxes because it's the way that you worship God by saying, I want to make sure I worship my God with my whole life, so you create a list, knock yourself out. But if you approach that differently, that's okay. So we're not railing against discipline or habits or people who like structure. What we're saying is the Bible wants to look at our heart. Are we trying to figure out what's the most of my kingdom that I can keep? Or am I asking the question, how do I let God invade every part of my life? That's the question. That's the motivation we want to get at. Whose kingdom do we want? Do I want my kingdom or I want God's kingdom? Second thing is this. Jesus is our model. Romans chapter 3, verses 10, 11, and 12. The Apostle Paul is quoting from the Psalms. He says this about you and I. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So Jesus, I'm pretending here, standing in heaven, God says, I want you to go die for the people in the world. And, and Jesus, the son, says to the father, how about if I die for my neighbors? Who is my neighbor? Who? Who does the Bible say is his neighbor? No, not one. If Jesus asked who his neighbor is before coming to die for us, he wouldn't have died. So he is, in fact, our model of what it looks like to be a neighbor because he died for everyone and none of us were being neighborly. He shows us what it looks like. Jesus didn't ask who's my neighbor because no one was. When we experience Jesus' love in that way, when we realize we are the no-not ones and he loved us anyway, then we are or ought to be moved to love others the way he expressed his love toward us. That's, the, that's where the source of our love comes from. Not from our own heart or motivation. It comes from understanding how much we've received from Jesus, who was a neighbor to us when we didn't deserve it. We then pass that love along to others who don't deserve it. Because Jesus loves sinners, just like us. Last thing is this, and then we'll close. 
I know it's kind of silly, but to think of the, God, think of the kingdom of God as an all-inclusive resort. But let me say it maybe this way. I think, I know, our joy in this world is limited. Our joy in this world becomes limited. The experience of joy in this world is limited to the degree that we are trying to keep our own kingdom. The more of our own kingdom we are trying to retain reduces the amount of joy we're going to experience in the kingdom of God. We are convinced it's the opposite. We are convinced the more I give up my will and seek the Lord's will, the more I will live in misery. Aren't we convinced of that? We are convinced I will be happy when everybody on planet Earth finally realizes I'm right. That's why, I mean, we're convinced of that. And we all have these dreams and aspirations, and we should have them, but we shouldn't hook our hope to them. Our hope is attached to Jesus. And we limit our joy in this world to the degree we try to retain our own kingdom. That's what the attorney tried to do. So as long as your Christian life is characterized by what's the minimum God wants of me, you're going to limit the joy you experience in the Lord. And I know you don't believe me, but that's the truth. Jesus' kingdom is better than yours. And some of you got some pretty awesome kingdoms. I'm totally down with them. Jesus is better. That's it. Who gets into the kingdom? If you want a relationship with God of this kingdom, he gives it to all who receive it by faith. And as believers, we should pray that over the course of our life, we will learn to give up our silly little kingdoms. God, we thank you for the kindness you have shown us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you came to die for us as our neighbor when we were in rebellion against you. That you didn't wait for us to be good neighbors to show your love toward us. Father, we agree with you that we are often like this attorney looking for ways to minimize the impact of your kingdom on our life. God, we would pray that in this moment you would move in our hearts in a way that we would see the glory of your kingdom, the joy of your kingdom, the satisfaction of knowing you through faith in Jesus Christ, that we would hold loosely to the things you have given us in this world, that we would seek first the kingdom of God. God, the reality is in our own hearts in this moment, each of us can think of people that we don't like. And Lord, I would pray in this moment by your spirit, you would move us to repent. If you only died for people that were likable, you wouldn't have died. God, would you make us like Jesus, that we would show love to everyone you place in our life. God, we pray that you would make us kingdom kind of people because we love you, God, and we love what you are like, and we want you to invade every nook and cranny of our life. We pray you would get great glory in changing us to be like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.